If you would, once again, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Just a moment, I'm going to read verses 6 through 13. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts and minds through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would clearly communicate the truth to us of the written word. Father, we ask that you would cause our hearts to be sensitive to your leading, to be sensitive to the conviction of sin, to be sensitive, Father, to those things that we may not be doing well, to the things that we may be doing wrong. We pray, Lord, also we'd be sensitive to the conviction of your spirit if we are not thinking correctly. Father, we ask also that you would remind us of our need for Christ as believers and that to overcome these things that Paul is talking about to us this morning, that, Father, apart from a growing and a strengthening relationship with Jesus Christ, we are doomed to fall into this kind of sin. We pray, Lord, that we would never overestimate our own ability and strength. And we also pray, Lord, that you would fashion our hearts so that we would hate sin, that we would hate the sin that is in us and not just hate the sin that's in others. Help us in particular, Father, to hate the sins that Paul is describing for us here today if we find these things in us. The Father, we may pursue holiness and experience the great joy that you have for us. As always, Father, we know that you are with us and we thank you for that and for the assurance that we receive because of that. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, Paul writes, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I mentioned this in my prayer, and again, remember from last week as we were looking at uh, this passage kind of as a whole, that we wanted to make sure that we weren't going to miss out on one of the main points that Paul wants to make. And that is as he enumerates these sins, which we are now going to look at in a little bit of detail today. The main point of this is not then for us to kind of gather our strength, uh, put our heads together, try to figure out what are the best steps in overcoming these things, uh, and then kind of move forward together uh, in striving after holiness. The main point is that apart from this growing relationship with Christ, a, a growing awareness of our dependence upon him and, and growing strong spiritually in Christ, we're not going to overcome these things. They're, they're going to overcome us. We're going to find ourselves 
I guess you would say, slipping and falling in this way of thinking. I believe that when it comes to these sins that he's talking about here, that Paul is not just arbitrarily just picking at random some sins that he can as you read the letter that is written to the Corinthians, that this is, again, the word of God. And this is the word of God to them, and this is the word of God to us. This is what he wants us to know. This is what he uh, wants us to think about. This is what he is going to use to shape the way we live and our attitudes and the way that we approach life. This is for our good uh, when, he, when he gives us these instructions and so we're going to look at these things then that Paul describes, and you will find as we work our way through them, that they are all to a degree interconnected. Now when I say that, it doesn't necessarily mean that one leads to another, though it often does. But remember that when we sin, when we commit acts of sin, we very rarely commit a single act of sin. When we sin, there are usually... In fact, maybe always, multiple sins that we are committing. If I was to, for some reason, let's say that I'm having a discussion with Robert and I lie to him, I've not just sinned by lying. If I'm lying to him because maybe I'm trying to save face, well, that's pride. So there's sin there. If I'm also lying to him because I don't want to admit that I'm wrong, well, that's once again pride and arrogance. Maybe I'm lying to him because also at the same time, uh, I don't want to deal with whatever it is that, that uh, might come up. And so there's more sin there. And then it may be perhaps in the back of my mind, because, you know, we know our hearts can easily deceive us. I really want to continue in whatever it is that's going on. So I'm sinning again. There's the ongoing sin. Then I'm not being honest with myself. I'm not being honest with God. I'm not really truly repenting of my sin. And so now the sins are just piling up and all I've done is lie to Robert. And so in that one lie, there are, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 multiple offenses against the standard of God's holiness. So we want to make sure that we keep that in mind then that as we work our way through this, that none of us then begins to think, oh, well, I understand or I recognize what that sin is. I don't have a problem with that. Because I also believe that when Paul picks these things to enumerate here in this passage, he is picking those things that not only are common to most people, but the reason why they are common is because they, they tend to be uh, uniquely strong, uniquely alluring, uniquely attuned to the flesh. And so we are easily drawn away by these things. And we want to keep that in mind. We are easily drawn away by these things. So keep verse 12, which we will uh, um, emphasize again at the end. But the idea is, is that, you know, take heed. You know, if you think you stand, you're, 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 you're setting yourself up to fall. The idea is you're not as strong as you think you are. Don't really ever for a moment think that you've got a handle on these things. Uh, now, it may not be wrong for us to th actually think that in the strength of the Lord, I have a handle on these things. That would be, I guess, in a sense, permissible. I just wouldn't recommend it. Because when we do that, we tend to let our guard down. Just like the time that you, you may let someone know that you're very disciplined in the way that you eat. 
And then on the way home, you have this incredible craving for Doritos. And you may stop to get milk, and you just so happen to get Doritos as well, or whatever the case may happen to be. We just kind of set ourselves up uh, for that kind of thing. So the first one is, again, he just, it's a very general thing. It's desiring evil things. Verse 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So he immediately gets to the heart of the issue, which is our heart. And that is we have these desires. That's what James tells us in the book of James, that when you and I are tempted, it's because we are drawn away and we are enticed uh, by our own hearts. Uh, what is interesting is when you, when you uh, look at that passage in James and he talks about how desire gives way to sin or that desire gives birth to sin, the word that's used there, remember Greek's a very precise language, and the word that is used in James uh, when it talks about desire giving birth to sin, uh, the word birth there is not the normal word that is used for when human beings deliver a baby. Uh, it's actually uh, uh, a word that's used when animals give birth. So it would be the word spawn. I, I think what he's trying to illustrate for us there is that when our, when our hearts are leading us and our hearts are leading us astray and we're following the desires of our heart, uh, it minimizes our humanness in the sense of being created in the image of God. And so it's kind of this, this guttural spawning like what animals do and this is what comes out. And it's these sinful acts. So again, the, the, the immediate uh, thread here is that we need to make sure that we're guarding our hearts. And, and that's one of the things that being in the Word of God and prayer really helps us to do, uh, is to guard our hearts. So what we have here, then, again, is, is, as we've seen as you read through many of the uh, passages in the Old Testament, a very tragic description of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Uh, we know that when they were there, they didn't lack food to eat because God provided for their needs, but they did grumble because they found God's provisions basically unsatisfying. And they got tired of it. You know, it's like eating the same thing over and over again. We get tired of it. They wanted something that was tastier, maybe even something that was a little more spicy. Uh, and so they came to despise God's provisions. That's what, it's kind of a strange thing, but that's what the human being is that is we begin to despise good things. We, we do that in many ways. Uh, it is not unusual, for example, in a marriage relationship that um, uh, a woman may say in the beginning of the relationship that one of the things that she really loves about her husband is that he is uh, stable, he's predictable, he's solid. And then after several years, he's now boring because he's stable and predictable. Uh, maybe um, what you like about your partner is that they are a free spirit uh, and uh, they're just fun to be around. And after several years, they're now out of control and it's exhausting. You know, so what happens is we begin to despise what we loved before. Uh, that happens very easily to us as individuals. And so the same thing can happen uh, when it comes to the things that God's provided us. Or, and here, this is what the, what the children of Israel were doing. So what they, then, what they began to do is they began to long for their days of slavery as if those were their good old days because they had tastier food. That's the idea. We have a phrase we use where you know, we look at history with rose-colored glasses. The idea is we remember the past and all we see is the good. We do that sometimes. You hear some people say, oh, if I could just go back to when I was a teenager again, back to the 50s. 
It was just so great then. And I would say, well, you need to read a complete history of the 50s because it wasn't great for everybody. It wasn't as good as you think it was. It may have been good for you, uh, but maybe it wasn't as great as even you thought it was. So whatever the time period is, we have to make sure that we are uh, kind of have our eyes wide open and we take off the uh, pink colored shades uh, when it comes to that. And so they forgot all the hardships in a sense. It wasn't that they didn't intellectually remember. It's just that they were thinking about the food and the way that it tasted. And so they had really this unbridled craving, a desire that uh, as a children of Israel, they, they sought to satisfy. And so it led them to their death. Let me read to you from Psalms uh, 106 beginning in verse 13. It says this, they soon forgot his, meaning God's, his works and would not wait for his counsel. They were seized with craving in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. He gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. Now that's the, the Christian standard translation. Now let me, let me just kind of throw something out there that we want to make sure we don't get caught up in because there's a phrase also we use today, a cliche, uh, that I don't think is a, a healthy one. And sometimes people will say this. They'll say, well, be careful what you pray for because you might just get it. Okay, that's, that's horrible. All right? that's not a, it's just, that phrase, without being explained, is just not very accurate. However, I will say this, that we still should be careful, not only what we pray for, but why we are praying for it. Because this is what we see here, illustrated here. So several things that are important to remember. Number one, they soon forgot his works. That's why when you and I gather together as believers, when we read through the scripture, oftentimes what we are reading in the Bible is things that we've read before, but we are reading them again to remind us of what? Of God's activity, of what God has actually done. When we think about the past and how God has blessed us, we are remembering the works of God. We do that when we gather together and when, we, when we're singing some of the hymns that we sing. We're remembering the works of God. Yeah, the primary work of God that we remember is the work of Christ on the cross. Absolutely. You know, where Christ came and, and lived that perfect life and then, and then suffered on our behalf, where God placed on him our sin and he was actually and literally punished as if he had committed the sins that we were going to commit. Right? And so, that's, so we remind ourselves often of, of that, and it's important for us to do that so that we don't forget. So it's not that you and I are suddenly going to become stupid, and we can't intellectually remember the history of this, but it's no longer in the forefront of our mind in the sense that it should guide and direct and shape the way we think, our attitudes, that kind of thing. So they soon forgot his works, and then as a result of that, what that can lead to then is impatience. You see, when we forget what God has done for us, we then are thinking, how am I going to resolve this issue? How am I going to get, for example, the, the taste of your food or whatever it happens to be? So the thing here is, is that we, we tend to no longer want to wait for the counsel of God. We place less value on it. Then, and I like, and the reason why I quoted from the Holman or the Christian Standard Version is, I like the way this is phrased because I believe that it kind of brings about really what happens in the human condition. And it says they were seized with craving. Now, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. I don't know if I've ever been seized with craving. Uh, but I will tell you that a couple of weeks ago, um, it had been a long time since I had any Asian food. And there was the Asian food truck at Butterbean Beach. And they have bagogi, which is a Korean barbecue, which I absolutely love. 
So when Cindy mentioned that we could go there and get that, I won't say that I was seized with craving, but I did, like Pavlov's dogs, began to salivate very heavily. I mean, it was just, it was just a, a natural response. All right, so this is kind of like that, but much stronger. Right? So they were seized with craving in the wilderness. And then, of course, they tested God. And we'll talk a, a little bit more about what that means in a moment, but they tested God. So you can, again, you can see that it leads to you and I becoming an idiot. Uh, when, it come, when that begins to take place. Whatever the craving is, the, the foolish thing we're going to pursue. And so then it says God gave them what they asked for. Now, when God gave them what they asked for, it was in judgment because of why they were asking. Remember, they had forgotten God. They placed very little value uh, on his counsel. They weren't going to wait for God. And so then what took place was God said, fine, I'm going to give you what you've asked for in abundance. And as a result, they began to become sick and they began to die. So God, again, what it reveals here, and this is another thing to, re to remember, especially uh, today, because we live in a society which tends to downplay this. And that is that God is very active in your life and my life. Okay? God is not just out in distant space and where he has in a sense, disattached himself from the way we live. Now, God may not always move in what we would call obvious ways, but God is never leaving us alone. And so in the same way that he brought ju immediate judgment in their life as discipline, God may and will do the same for us. It's very easy for us to kind of put that to us aside because we kind of live in an atmosphere, our culture, we live in an atmosphere where that is believed to be just passe. That's something that, you know, superstitious people believe in when they read the Old Testament. We are beyond that. Uh, certainly you don't believe that God is out there, you know, following you around to curse your life. Well, no one's ever said that God's following you around seeking to curse your life. We're not saying that. What we are saying is good and bad. God is active. It's a, it's a great thing. And should bring us great comfort when we think of that. But God is active. And as his children, he's not going to let us get away with things. There's going to be discipline to correct us. Number two, the second thing is, which you find in verse 7, is idolatry. Where it says, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, if you would, turn your Bibles to Exodus 32. I'm going to read from there in a moment. But often what happens is whenever we come across the word idolatry as Christians, we immediately, or at least many people do, they immediately think in terms of statues uh, or carvings and think, well, I don't bow down to statues and carvings. I don't go to the temple of Venus uh, and worship. So I've got this covered. Well, remember that idolatry uh, is not limited to just that. That is a form of idolatry, absolutely. But idolatry uh, in a general sense is really where you have a, a loyalty or a commitment, uh, an attachment to anything that, is, that you've placed above God. It doesn't mean that you've actually said the words, I'm now placing this above God, but your life reveals that you have. Right? It may be your cravings, it may be yourself, it may be your view of yourself, it may be the way that you want others to view you, it may be money or power or position, uh, it could be a lot of different things, 
that we idolize. And so that's what guides and directs our decisions more so than what God says. And that's idolatry. And so he just says, do not be idolaters. It's just straight out. Uh, and so again, this is the word of God to us as well as to the Corinthians. God is not limited by time. God is not ever out of date. The word of God endures forever and its truth is not limited by time and culture. It's always true. So I then need to think about what he says here and realize that this is God's message to me in, this, in the 21st century. This is God's message to you in the 21st century, regardless of where you live. And so we need to take it to heart. Again, he gives the example from the Old Testament, beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, uh, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a, with a uh, graving tool, uh, made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So again, these individuals are becoming impatient. Moses hasn't coming down, has not come down from the mountain, and so uh, they have this overwhelming sense to worship. They are very much aware, because many of them are raised in a culture in Egypt where they worship many different gods. Perhaps they're having a doubt uh, in their mind that the God of Israel is the one true God. And so they demand from Aaron uh, to, uh, to make them an altar. Uh, it says, make up gods that shall go before us. And uh, Aaron, you can tell his arm is not being twisted. He readily agrees. He immediately has a plan. He wants their gold and he fashions uh, a cow or a golden calf. And then makes this proclamation and says, these are your gods. I mean, this is blasphemy of the highest order. I mean, imagine coming to church one Sunday and let's just say the, the, the COVID-19 thing just gets worse and everybody is just absolutely just freaking out. And you just, you want to do something. And so I say, well, give me your jewelry. And then I end up making some kind of an image and I go, this is your God, and this is the one that's going to save you. I mean, I, I, I would never do that. <coughs> However, we may be amazed at the kinds of things people may do. But if that was to be done, that would be just so, to us, blatantly obvious that, that that's, that's not our God. But this is what Moses, this is what Aaron does. And then he makes this proclamation that they're going to have a big festival the next day. And so they're into it. They're really into it. I think one of the things to remember is that Paul is intent on pointing out that when it comes to idolatry, it's also what accompanies idolatry. As I mentioned before, you know, if we, if we place, for example, ourselves or the way people view us, what we want them to think about us before our loyalty to God... Then, then that idolatry is, it, it's, what, it's what is accompanying our idolatry. It's these other decisions that we're making. 
You know, it's the attitudes that we're forming. It's, it's the way that we treat people. You know, we're going to tend to begin to treat people who have a good opinion of us over those who have a bad opinion of us. We're going to begin to treat uh, certain people differently because their opinion will have greater value, maybe in social circles and other individuals. So those are all the kinds of things that accompany idolatry. So here the idolatry was associated with eating and drinking. Uh, not that eating and drinking by themselves are sinful because they aren't. Uh, but basically they would have offered sacrifices to the idol. They would have sat down then in honor of these gods to eat and to drink. Uh, and um, then following this meal, when it says they rose up to play, uh, this doesn't mean that they uh, got up to play hopscotch. Uh, it has to do with things of a sexual nature. And so they are eating and drinking uh, the various things that are involved with idol worship and immorality. And all of that is a part of Israel's idolatry. And you will notice that in all of these things that um, Paul brings up, immorality is kind of a... Uh, a thread that connects all of it. When you read through the New Testament, there seems to be, I've not counted, but there seems to be more warnings about really basically sexual immorality than any other sin. It, it seems to be one that is just all encompassing. It comes in so many forms. It is so uh, strong. Uh, it is so alluring that we really have to be on our guard no matter what century you live in. It is, it is something that all of us are in danger of. We, we need to remember that. All of us are in danger of this. We must begin, when it comes to sexual immorality, I believe this is a good, solid, positive stance to have. You cannot trust yourself. I know that sounds negative, but it's positive. That would keep you out of trouble. You do not want to find out how strong you are. You don't. It's, it's not worth it it's never worth it there are people within christianity and outside of christianity that have found out that their entire lives have been destroyed and they have lost everything they love because of sensual immorality i do think about that a lot i you know when, when I, I i think about what am i willing to do to lose the relationship I have with my wife, my children, my children's spouses, my grandchildren, because all of that will be deeply hampered, hindered, or maybe lost. Now, there ain't nothing worth that. But I want to make sure that I continually think about that. And then, of course, what's on top of that is obviously our relationship with the Lord. But sometimes what we think of is, well, the Lord will forgive us. And then we just kind of move on. But the devastation, the Lord will forgive you. There is never a promise, never, that the Lord will protect you from the consequences of your sin. You will be forgiven. That's true. That makes some people nervous. They get all eebie-jeebie about it. You can't say that because people run out and do it. Well, it's still, it's a true statement. But what we have to make sure we don't assume is that God is going to overlook what we've done and cause the consequences to magically disappear. Because he won't do that. He will not do that. And again, the Old Testament, we have several illustrations of that. In chapter 32 of Exodus, let on down in verse 25, basically Moses describes the worship where the Israelites cast aside all self-control. And that is again what idolatry can lead to. 
is a lack of self-control. It doesn't mean that you, be, you become suddenly a wild man, but we're familiar with stories, and maybe with ourselves, but we're familiar with stories where an individual has done something and we are thinking, or, or in a conversation we say, I'm just surprised they went that far. Or I'm just surprised they seem to be more disciplined than that. I'm just surprised because it seems so out of the ordinary for them. All right, well, what does that mean? Well, that means they lost self-control. Now, when I say they lost self-control, I don't think it is not where their sin has overwhelmed them and they can't help themselves. They've willingly given in. That, that's really what true, whether you want to deal with any kind of addiction or any kind of a very powerful sin or temptation. Uh, when, when I use the term, a person has lost self-control, uh, I, I never mean that in the sense uh, that the individual somehow has either no responsibility or less responsibility for what they've done. I still believe they're 100% responsible for what they've done. Uh, so the losing of self-control is a, is a choosing to give in and to be controlled by their passions. That's really what's going on there. And so, uh, again, the worship that's involved there is not only heathen, but it is unrestrained indulgence. So uh, let me just do one more because that's all we have time for. Uh, I thought I would get through all five and then uh, jump into uh, verse 12, but that's not going to happen. So the one that we said is a thread that goes through this is immorality. And that's the third thing in verse 8, where he says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, what's important about this is once again, what we are reminded of is that God is not, it's not just God in the Old Testament. God is very much aware and intervenes in their lives and acts according and reacts according to what they do. God is not a disinterested party. And so here we see that there is a incredible consequence and discipline to what's taken place. And 23,000, that's not a small number. That's a lot of people to die in one day. This is overwhelming. Numbers chapter 25, beginning of verse 1. While Israel was staying in Achaia, in, in, in Achaia Grove, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshipped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses told Israel's judges, kill each of the men who aligned themselves with Baal of Peor. So once again, immorality is viewed as a part of the package of idolatry. The Israelites fell into immorality. And when we say fell, we don't mean by accident, uh, but they fell into immorality, immorality with the Moabite women as they joined with them in their idol worship. So the idea was these women invited these men to come and worship with them. These men knew that a part of that worship was the whole uh, issue of leading into sexual behavior or sexual immorality. They knew that. They, they, they weren't going in there and they were like, oh my goodness, I didn't know this was going to happen. They knew exactly what was going to happen. And, so the, and they went towards that for that reason. Um, and so again, there's these very strong terms absolute terms that Paul uses, which is don't do this, period. Just don't let that happen. And so we need to make sure. So here, back to then our beginning premise, and that is this. Number one, we want to make sure that we don't think for a moment that we are immune to these kinds of temptations. 
We must never uh, uh, assume that we are in and of ourselves strong enough to resist these things, either in public or in private, whether uh, physical acts or in, or in our head. And that is why, once again, we not only need this growing relationship with Christ, but that is also why, then, one of the reasons, is not the only reason why we, ha we are to have a strong uh, spiritual relationship with our spouse. Because right? we're, we're, we're to be going in the same direction together. If, if you're not, it makes it hard. It's no excuse to, to go off the reservation. But again, it is to help with that. And then also, our gathering together as believers. Knowing we're going to see each other week after week and, and growing in our relationship, that's a good thing. What's supposed to happen is, uh, so I can tell you this, so, so that if I was to, to fall uh, into sexual sin, along with all the different things that God could do, there would be an overwhelming sense of shame to have to see any of you. And the longer I've known you, the, the worse it will be. That's a, that's a positive thing in my life. If, if, that, if that's what it takes to get me to stay out of harm's way, that's awesome. Absolutely awesome. The fact that I don't want you to think ill of me in that way, that's, that's a positive use of that. I'm not living my life because I want people to think well of me, but I want people to think well of me. Because I care about them, and they also care about me. And so that's why sometimes those who go from church to church, the real, some, some of the danger with that is it makes it easier to sin. It makes it easier to sin. Who are you going to face? You don't really know anybody. I've known that guy for a couple of weeks, for a couple of years. We sit in the same pew. I don't really know him. So it doesn't mean anything to you. But it means a lot to you if you've been in a friendship with them for 10 years or 15 years. And that's, that's a, a marvelous thing. So this is what Paul, all these things are going on as he develops this idea. And so we, we need to make sure we take these things to heart and then recognize, again, the importance of our gathering together, the importance of not taking our, our own strength for granted, the importance of a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. So then, again, we together, as a group of individuals who've placed our faith in Christ, recognizing what that means and what that represents, that we then as a group have acknowledged that we are sinners and that we are in need of Christ. Uh, saving power and then as a result of that we are now pursuing together holiness and we're going to pray for each other help each other lift each other up and help each other in every way that we can to make sure that it happens so that we don't end up in the in the same boat as this church and all the troubles that they were encountering because what it does in the end is it hinders the cause of Christ it hinders the work of the gospel in the lives of non-believers. And remember that this is not necessarily just non-believers in general, people we don't know, but remember that what happens in a church can, can um, harm the non-believers in your family. That means your sons and your daughters. That means your grandchildren. See, now, now we've just changed all the rules. We don't want that to happen. And it can happen. And that's why how we take these things, how we live these things out, and how we deal with them are really very, very important. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and for the strength of the message of your word. I do pray, Father, that you would help us to take these things to heart. We know, Father, that we, we should take these things to heart. 
it's easy, Father, for us to think about it only briefly and then move on. Now, Father, we're not, we're not asking you to make our lives somehow morbid. We're not looking, Father, to walk around in a, in a sad state because we're only thinking of these warnings that Paul has given us. But, Father, we do want to live rightly and disciplined and soberly. We, we still want to enjoy life and, and laugh and um, experience all the wonderful blessings you have. But, Father, we also know that what undergirds all of that is a, a serious understanding of the strength of sin and the strength of temptation and the ongoing need that we have of Christ and the ongoing need that we have for each other. So, Father, we ask that you would give to us a very strong uh, desire, a hunger for righteousness, for all the various reasons that we've mentioned. Father, we do pray for those here again who may not know Christ, because, Father, for them, they, uh, uh, they are unable to experience really the depth of life that we're able to experience. And, and, they, and they walk around really as condemned men, as some have said, dead men walking. So we pray, Lord, that once again you would help us to live as we ought to live so that our witness will not be hindered. And then the words that we speak may be words of life to them, that they may seriously contemplate the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask now that as we're bringing our time here to a close this morning, we ask, Father, that you would cause us to think often about these things and you would burn them deep into our hearts and minds. Thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.